Now I hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 23, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshib Bashabeth the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Eznite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and he attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Yahweh brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So Yahweh brought about a great victory. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for the accounts of your mighty men, for the accounts we've read of David and his giant killers who followed after him. And today, as we go through this roster of those who served in his core group and his elite uh, royal army, we pray that you would also make us men and women who fight in your army, who are not afraid, who have uh, uh, full courage and full confidence in your Holy Spirit to give us the strength that we need. So, Father, encourage us today as we read these accounts. Inspire us to be men like these men. And, Father, I pray that every word that I say would be uh, acceptable and pleasing in your sight today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. At the end of every movie, you have a long list of credits. You have a scroll of the names of all the people who helped make the motion picture a reality. Today, it takes literally thousands of people, and I'm not exaggerating. It's something like 2,500 people to make one of these new big blockbuster superhero movies or one of these animated films. Uh, And they all get their recognition by having their name permanently uh, stamped on the end credits. Every, for, from now on, they can always go back and look, say, yeah, I, I, helped, I helped in that movie. Authors ordinarily have an acknowledgement section in their books where they take time to thank all of those people who contributed to the writing and the publication of their book. Albums have liner notes. Uh, you remember probably at one point getting a record album and looking at the liner notes or maybe a CD or a cassette and reading. Uh, who, who made this possible? What are the names of the people in the, in the band? At retirement parties, there's always a speech where the retiree names all the people who played an important role in their career. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Nothing gets produced. Nothing of value gets made. You can't do much of anything worthwhile without a whole host of people working together, making their individual significant contributions to the success of the project, to the success of the career, to the success of the artwork. Here at the end of 2 Samuel, we get the credits. We get the acknowledgments section. We get a roll call of all the mighty men who served alongside King David. We've already got one short list of giant killers in this appendix to the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Again, and I've said this early on, you know, 1st and 2nd Samuel's one book, it's two scrolls. It's too long to fit on one scroll. So we've got two scrolls of Samuel. And so we're in the second scroll of Samuel and toward the end we have this this collection of information, an appendix to the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. 
And to walk through that again quickly to remind you where we are, the section began with a crisis that needed some atonement, a deal with uh, uh, the, the, the house of King Saul and, and unfinished business there. And then we have a list of giant killers and their mighty acts. And then we have uh, David's psalm, uh, which is essentially Psalm 18. And now we're going to walk back through that outline in reverse. So we had a crisis that needed atonement. We had a list of mighty men. We had a psalm. And now last week we had David's hymn to the king who shines like the sun, who nourishes the land, who gives life to the people. Then we have uh, a list of mighty men. And at the very end, once again, we'll have a situation, a crisis that calls out for atonement. So that's, that's the layout of this of this section that we're in the middle of. Now that hymn that we read last week that begins chapter 23, that that hymn ends with a reference to warfare. God's king, David sings, not only shines with blessing and nourishes the righteous, he does, but God's king also takes up the spear and deals with the sons of rebellion. Yeah, he causes the grass to grow, but he also cuts out and he burns the thorns, the thorny people, the thorny rulers, the thorny philosophies, the thorny systems. Those, those enemies of God can only be dealt with one way. You can't cultivate them. You can't uh, put, put enough uh, fertilizer on them to get them to bear fruit. You can't husband them into productivity. You have to rip them out and you have to burn them. The message here is that the true king who obeys, the, the king in whom God delights is the king who takes up warfare against Satan and his forces. Now, when we use this warfare language, we understand we're not what, what we're talking about, right? The sword of the spirit, God's sword has two edges. It always has two edges. One edge is, uh, is the, the, the side of the sword that we all need to be struck by. We all need to be struck in such a way that we die to ourselves, we die to our sins, and we're resurrected to new life. Um, in the liturgy today, this is the section of the worship service. This is the section of the, of the sacrificial liturgy where we be, we're being cut up by the sword of the word. This is, this is where we're at uh, now. So we all need God's sword, right? We all need to be put to death by his sword. The problem is that there are those who will not submit to his rule. They will not submit to the good death that gets us resurrection on the other side. They will uh, resist and they won't submit. And so the only thing you can do with them is give them the other side of the sword. And that's what um, we see throughout the Old Testament is that kind of, uh, that kind of warfare. Now, uh, does the church use that kind of the sword? No. Our sword uh, and, and our weapons of warfare are the Psalms. We cry out for God to avenge. We don't uh, we don't um, shoot or kill or, or stab or, or, or you know, go to physical warfare as individuals or as a church. Christian nations, however, must and should and do that. Um, of course, that, that is something I, I feel the need to, a little footnote, need to clarify every once in a while when we talk about uh, our warfare that we understand what kind of warfare uh, we're talking about. So the king, God's king, is a conqueror, and his people follow in his footsteps. The king is a warrior, and that gives his people the courage and the confidence to be warriors too. The king is a giant killer. His people are giant killers. He's a serpent head crusher, and so his people are as well. That means that the true king that David sings about in his hymn, the true king is, uh, is, is a king that has an army around him. This was illustrated clearly back in Exodus after the construction of the tabernacle. The, the tent 
of meeting. The, the holy tabernacle sits in the middle of the camp. And then the people are camped in a military array in their tents around God's tents. And when they get up to move, they march like an army. They're just not, they're not, you know, this mob, this horde of people just rambling through the wilderness. They march like an army. And, and they're led by God's glory cloud of angelic warriors. That's the whole theology of the book of Numbers. God's people are a heavenly army. They wear four wings on their garments like, like the cherubim. They're defending God's holiness with a, with a flaming sword. Much later in our study in uh, 2 Samuel, when David bemoans the fact that God is still dwelling in a tent and he wants to build God a permanent temple, one of the answers that God gives to David for why he wants him to wait is, look, I'm, I've already got a temple. I've got a house and that house is made of people and I want to establish that house, David. I'm making you a house. My house is my people. And God's temple has always been made up of his people. Even when the temple fell and was rebuilt and then fell again, God, that, that didn't change anything about the uh, consistency and the, and the composition of God's people. God's house are, are, are his people. He dwells among his people. So God has a temple made of people, and those people are warriors. God lives in a warrior temple. In the last chapter, David is going to fail, and we're going to get to this next week, but, but David is going to fail in his reckoning here. He's going to act like, David's going to act like it's his temple, and he can do with it whatever he wants, and God is going to uh, punish him and chastise him for that. But that's the context here. We read David's hymn about the king taking up the spear, and then immediately after that, we find out that the king has an army around him. The king has a warrior temple, a house a house has four corners. The, the king is the chief cornerstone of the house, and then he has three other cornerstones, three chief counselors, three mighty men. That's the way it usually works, right? All the, all the big mighty men in the Bible have, have three close friends. Job was probably a king, and he has his three advisors, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, um, who turn out to be unwise counselors, but he's, he's a mighty man. He, he's the cornerstone. He's got his three other cornerstones. Noah is the cornerstone of the new creation after the flood, and he has his three sons. Uh, David is the chief advisor, but he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. As Tim read this morning in the gospel reading, who does he take up to the Mount of Transfiguration with him? Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but he also has Peter, James, and John. That's the way it works. You've got the chief cornerstone, but you've got the other cornerstones that make up the house and whom the house rests on. So, David is the chief cornerstone of his kingdom, but he has three other cornerstones. And for a while, he has his three nephews, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Azahel dies very early on, and he's replaced by another man of Judah, Benaiah, who we'll read about in just a few minutes. But this section tells us that not only did he have his nephews as his other uh, cornerstones, but for a significant period of his reign, he also had other men who served in this capacity over his 40 years. And I read about him just a few minutes ago. Exciting stuff. There was Joseph, Eleazar, and Shammah, these three men. These are men we haven't met before, but each of their names comes here with a short story about their exploits, describing how they fought to bring about deliverance for God's people. They all have something in common. Each one stands his ground in combat when all or most of the rest of the army retreated. Their valiant stand in each situation serves as a turning point 
from defeat to victory. And, and their survival against a, a horde of enemies has only one explanation. It's only possible that God's spirit has sustained them. God brought the victory, not them. So let's look at each one of these other cornerstones that David had, his captains of his army. The first one was Joshib. He's also called Adino. He killed 800 men at one time in the course of one battle. 800 men at one time. How much strength, how much vigor, uh, how much uh, uh, constitution does it take to kill one man? Have you ever wrestled? Some of you guys have wrestled before. Have you ever played a lineman in a football game? You know, you know what that takes out of you to play one football game, uh, holding a, another guy off of your quarterback for, for four quarters? You, don't, you know what? That, that's, that's awful. That wrestling is awful. I mean, you feel like junk afterwards. You're done. He didn't kill, and, and I didn't even kill the guy, right? <laughs> I, just, I just wrestled him, right? Uh, he he, how much strength does it take to fight with one man until he expires? And then two, and then three. Now count up to 800. He killed 800 men. That's how he fought. And he's a mighty man, and he's one of David's captains. The second is Eleazar, and he's one of three who stood with David when he fought with the Philistines. Eleazar stood his ground when the rest of the army had abandoned the field. He attacked the Philistines, it says, until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. I love that image. That is so encouraging. That is so um, it, it just um, it, it, thrilling to think of that. Have you ever held a tool so long that your hand cramps to the shape of a tool? Have you ever painted so long that your hand starts to, to, to seize up and your hand, it takes on the shape of the paintbrush or a, or a saw or a or a hammer, uh, you, you can't open your hand up. It, it's so cramped around the handle of the tool. You gotta rub it and let it relax. Your hand is molded to the shape of the tool. Some of you uh, boys and girls have Lego people, right? And the Lego people have hands like this, right? And you can put a gun in there, you can put a sword in there, you can put a shield in there, but their hands are just like this. They, uh, they can't ever wave, right? They, they just have to do this, I guess. And um, your action figures have molded hands, right? Well, that's what his hand was like. His hand was molded to the sword as he stood his ground and he defeated the enemy on his own and the rest of the people only showed up when it was time to collect the spoils. The third man was named Shama and he fought in the middle of a field of lentils. Why do we have that detail? You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink. He doesn't waste words. Every word is important, even when we don't understand why it's there. Why are we told that he fought in the middle of a field of lentils? Well, lentils aren't mentioned that often, but when they are mentioned, it's a significant point in history. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew, which is to say he traded it for not much, right? I mean, he traded his inheritance for a bowl of beans. He, he didn't even trade it for a steak. He didn't trade it for a big feast with his friends. He traded it for just a bowl of beans. Uh, that's one time lentils are mentioned. The other two times that they're mentioned is in a context of exile. David, we read just a few chapters ago, David was given lentils by the Gentile king when he was running from Absalom and he was out there in Gentile territory uh, uh, staying away from his son who was looking to kill him. There he ate lentils in exile. 
Then Ezekiel made a bread out of lentils, among other things, and he baked it over a fire of human waste. Of course, that's an unclean practice. We don't do that. But it symbolized, it was a prophetic symbol of the coming captivity and exile. It was a sign that Israel is going to eat this, this meager bread among unclean nations. Um, so these are, these are situations of oppression that cry out for deliverance. When there are, when there are lentils on the plate, we're looking for deliverance and we're under, we're under oppression. So it doesn't seem that lentils are Israel's main food, and it certainly doesn't seem like they're the most desirable food. There are no psalms dedicated to lentils, right? I mean, it's, it's not something anybody gets excited about. They're never, they're, they're never dedicated to uh, worship at the temple, or it's never mentioned in any capacity with, with the tabernacle or the tables of kings. So what we're talking about when we're talking about lentils is probably common poor man's food, right? And here Shammah stands in a field of lentils and he defends it against Philistine invaders. Every time Israel was subjected to outside oppressors, these other nations would send in raiding parties that would steal the food, they'd steal the livestock, they'd steal the wine and the grain and everything. We see that in the book of Judges. So here this man, this mighty man, protects the food and not just any food, he's defending the field and it's not a delicacy that he's defending. He's protecting the food source of the poor man. And he's defending the poor man's land here. Even when the rest of Israel has fled, he stands his ground and his victory means that there's food on the table. And not just food on the table for the king, but food on the table for the poor man. Victory and his victory against the Philistine means that we can eat and, and we can have something in our bellies. So in the same way, uh, our Lord Jesus' victory means that we can eat, just as we do every Lord's Day. Jesus stands solo on the battlefield against Satan on the cross. Jesus stands there by himself. Everybody else fled away. Everybody else ran away. But there he stood, and Jesus defends the inheritance. He defends the land so that we can feast at his table. We can come and collect the spoils. And that's what happened at the end of this story. The, uh, after he had defeated the Philistines, everybody came and, and collected the spoils of victory. And we're in there position. And we get introduced to these mighty men individually, all three of them. And now we get the, uh, now we get the team up, you know, it's kind of like meeting this, you know, Iron Man and the Hulk and who's the other one? I can't keep them straight. Now, now we get the team up movie, right? We get them all together. And this is an adventure and a, and a mighty feat uh, uh, that they all three on go together. These three in verse 13 of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. That's the valley of giants. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to Yahweh. And he said, far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Uh, uh, early in David's reign, at some point, when he's still mopping up the Philistines, the Philistines had taken possession of David's hometown. They had taken over Bethlehem, and they were using it to garrison and stage their armies. 
Now, David is back in the cave of Adullam. Well, he's been there before, hasn't he? That's where he hid from Saul for a time. And so he's back there with his mighty men. And in the midst of this exile and in the midst of this conflict and, and in this moment of homesickness, David uh, expresses a desire. He said, boy, I just, you know what would be good right now? I'd love, I'd love a drink from the well in Bethlehem. I don't, what was so special about that well? Well, it was probably just an association. I just, I just wish that I could have some water from that well. I doubt that he literally wanted somebody to go get him, you know, some, some water from Bethlehem at that moment. It was more of an expression of, of his sorrow that, that Bethlehem was now being oppressed and his desire that Bethlehem be liberated so that we could all go back home. We could all enjoy the fruits of the land, the water and the wine and, and all the bread, and we live in peace and safety. That, that's what he's expressing. But his three mighty men that we just read about, they take him seriously and they say, oh, wow, the king, David, he wants water from the well of Bethlehem. Well, let's go get him, son. So they hear his wish and they do a little sneaking and they do a little fighting and they break through the lines of the Philistines and they draw David some water from the well of Bethlehem. And they take their water and they fight all the way back to David, carrying this precious canteen of water. And when they get back to David, they expect him to drink it and give them thanks. But what does he do with it? He doesn't, he doesn't drink it. He pours it out like a sacrifice to Yahweh. I mean, and couldn't you take one sip? I mean, after all of this, couldn't you take a little drink, a little swaller? No, he's, he pours the whole thing out. That seems pretty ungrateful and that seems pretty cruel, doesn't it? Well, no, he calls this water, he associates it with the blood of the men who risked their lives to go get it for him. They went out and they put their lives in jeopardy for him. So he's associating this water with their sacrifice. And he's humble enough to admit, uh, to admit only God is worthy of this kind of sacrifice. I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. This water represents the lifeblood of these three brave men. This water is as good as their blood, and, and this, it could have cost them their lives. So, so David recognizes, I as a king, I can't send men out to do this, to risk their lives for the sake of my pleasure or the sake of my personal gain. Of course, uh, the problem is we, we immediately think, well, David, that's exactly what you did with Uriah, isn't it? You did the opposite. You spent Uriah's blood for your own security, for your own pleasure, and you did it to cover your tracks. Well, yeah, he did. But now at this point in his kingdom, whenever this comes, he realizes that he can't take the lives of God's army lightly. Now we get to hear about another set of three mighty men, three more of the uh, cornerstones around him. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. So there were two sets of three. And so Abishai was the chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men. He killed them and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. He wasn't part of the other three, but he was a captain of this. Joab's name comes up twice in this section, but we never read about him directly in this list. We read about his brothers, but we don't read about him, which is interesting given Joab's looming presence in the life of David. But perhaps at this point, the scribe, the author knows uh, we've heard plenty of, about Joab. In fact, if you've been reading this straight through, at this point, you've got a belly full of Joab, right? You're, you're tired of hearing about Joab and his, um, his plots. 
and his behavior. But now it's time to shine the spotlight on other men who deserve it, like Joab's brother Abishai, who we've seen coming and going. We've seen him before, but now we get to see what a great warrior he was. At one point, he was chief of this three. He killed 300 of God's enemies over his tenure, and he was the most honored of this group. Abishai was a cornerstone, and then Benaniah the, was, was another. I'm sorry, Beniah was, was another. We read about him in verse 20. Beniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. So he went down to him with a staff wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. Um, well, we get a number of details packed in here just in a few lines. This man, Benaiah, is the son of a valiant man from the southernmost border of Judah. He grew up near Edom. And just like the other giant killers that we read about a couple of chapters ago, Benaiah follows in David's footsteps. David used an unconventional weapon to kill a giant, right? David used a sling. Benaiah uses a staff to kill a spectacular man, a spectacular Egyptian. That word is... Uh, in, when we get this story again in First Chronicles, that's, that word is giant. So here he kills a giant of, of the Egyptians. Uh, so, so he uses a staff. That's an unconventional weapon. I think I'd want more than a staff if I was going up against a giant, but he does. I think I'd want more than a sling, to be quite honest, but David did as well. So, so both Benai and David use an unconventional weapon to kill a giant. And then David uses Goliath's own weapon to take off Goliath's head, Benaiah does the same. Benaiah uses the giant's own weapon to take off his head. David was a lion killer. Back when he was a boy, remember, Benaiah was a lion killer. Uh, this fascinating little story, and it's one of those little stories, you, I want more details, what's going on here? He kills a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. That, that, that word pit could also be cistern, uh, place uh, water supply. So did this lion, did this lion get into the water supply, somehow fell in, and now he's threatening the water supply. Nobody can get water because there's a lion uh, in it. Uh, it was on a snowy day. Well, 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 why is that significant? Well, I, I guess in the winter, predators are hungry. They're temperamental, especially if they fall in a pit and they can't get out. It all comes together. It's not a good day to mess with a lion. There may be good days to mess with a lion, but this is a snowy day and it's a cold day and he's temperamental and he's hungry and he's caught in a pit. It's not the day to go messing with a lion, but he does and he kills it. Remember how Samson killed a lion in a vineyard. And that was just a precursor to Samson killing lion-like people. It says Benai killed lion-like heroes of Moab. Well, so did Samson. Samson killed lion-like uh, people, we read. The Philistines are always associated in various symbols with lions. And the Philistines are Egyptians, as we've seen many times. Benaiah is famous for killing lion-like people, the heroes of Moab, and a giant Egyptian. Uh, so he was a member of the three for a time in David's kingdom. So we had Abishai, Benaiah, and Joab, who's not mentioned here. Joab were the set of three that we hear the most from. Now, in addition to 
the three, in addition to the three captains, David had 30 other men who were his elite fighting force. It seems the biblical model and the the model that David's kingdom follows is that God's kingdom doesn't have a great big standing professional army. In a sense, the whole nation is the army, but the whole nation is busy building and farming and conducting, conducting business. You have an elite crack force of your three captains and then your 30 mighty men who would train the militia, who would train the other fighting men. Every, every man in Israel of, of fighting age would be called upon to fight when there was a threat. And we see this happen many times. You blow the trumpet and you muster the militia, but you don't have a big standing army waiting around for something to do or getting entwined in unnecessary conflicts. It's, it's kind of like Switzerland today. Only 5% of Switzerland's army are regulars. Only 5% of their military are professional soldiers. The other 95% of of, the, of Switzerland's army is made up of male citizens aged 18 to 50. And they go by their regular work week by week. They, they go train a couple of weeks out of the year where they, where they learn what they need to do if they need to do it. And then they go back to work. They keep their own personal equipment and they keep all their weapons at home. And if the need ever arises, everyone has been trained to fight and everyone mobilizes. And so incidentally, and this is just fascinating, with all the turmoil in Europe, Switzerland hasn't been invaded since the 1700s. In World War II, Germany left Switzerland alone. Why would you invade a mountainous country where every able-bodied man is trained to fight and everyone has a gun? And not only do they have guns, but they've got these really cool knives that have all these attachments and all these things. I mean, the fact that that thing has a corkscrew on it shows you where their priorities are, right? That's the coolest part. So that's how Switzerland is set up. And that's how it seemed, that's how it was set up in Israel. And the reason I go into this is going to be really important when we get to the next chapter uh, to understand what happens in our reading next week. So remember this. But before we close out this chapter, we get a list of that elite crack force of fighting men who made up that uh, core uh, royal guard around David. Now, we could skip over this and we could not read these names, but we have read to this point aloud every word of First and Second Samuel. As I like to do when we study a book, we read every single word. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. He wants you to know uh, this list. God has preserved his word for you. So we're going to read it aloud and listen to it closely. Pay attention to see if you pick up on anything interesting. Verse 24, Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Um, he died very early on, remember. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, who we read about in the first list, he killed Goliath's brother. Shammah, the Herodite, Elika, the Herodite, Helez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, Abizir, the Anathatite, Bebunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahoite, Maharaj, the Netophethite, Heleb, the son of Baana, the Netophethite, Ittai, the son of Ribai from Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah, a Parathonite, Hidai from the brooks of Gaash, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Osmaveth, the Barhumite, Elihaba, the Shalbanite of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shammah the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Shar the Hararite, Eliphath the son of Abishai, the son of the Maakathite, Eliam the son of Ahitophel the Gileanite, that was uh, Bathsheba's father, Eliam or Eliam, 
Hezri the Carmelite, Pari the Arbite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Naharaj the Berethite, armor bearer of Joab the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ittite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. The first thing to notice from this list is that these men are from all over the map. Most of the giant killers that we read about in the first list, were, they were all from Bethlehem or Judah. But these men are from everywhere. And it's a testament to David's ability when he's at his best. When David is at his best, he's able to hold this allegiance from all these men of all kinds of different backgrounds. Some of them come from Judah, but one of them comes from Maaka. And that's, that's an enemy of Israel. Uh, there's, a, there's an Ammonite. They are not friendly to Israel. Uriah the Hittite. Hittites are not Jews. The point is that David's kingdom and his army are full of Gentiles. David's royal command is made up of, of representatives from the whole world, just about. He's realizing in his kingdom Israel's mission to bring all the nations in to worship Yahweh and to serve him in his forces. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing is that, yes, at the end, Uriah the Hittite's name is, is listed there. It's, it's heartbreaking when you think of how this man was treated. His name is listed here so that we've been having a good time reminiscing about all the exploits of David's men. And we've heard this psalm and this hymn about the wonderful things about the righteous king. But right here at the end of this chapter is a punch in the gut. We, we now have to rewind the tape and remember this whole saga of David and Bathsheba and Uriah all over again. And this, it's like the whole list ends in a thud. Yeah, Uriah the Hittite, don't forget him. Or maybe it doesn't end in a thud. Maybe there's a hint of redemption here. Remember how God was faithful to David, even when David wasn't faithful to Yahweh. And, and now, we, now we get to remember that Uriah was a mighty man. And that's the last word on Uriah. We get to remember him this way. We get to remember him as a hero. He didn't do anything wrong to have his name and his memory besmirched by this awful business with David taking his wife. Uriah was a faithful man and he was a true courageous soldier of the Lord. So we're to, remi- uh, we're to remember in spite of all the bad association, this brother, Uriah, who we'll see in heaven, I'm positive, this brother was still a mighty warrior, a faithful man, faithful to his king. And he was cut down early in a terrible situation, but he's still one of David's mighty men. And then we get the tally at the very end. We read 37 in all. If you count up the names in this list that I just read, there's 31. And then you've got the five that we just, that we just read about. Um, the, those uh, cornerstones, who's number 37? We're missing one. Well, Joab isn't named directly, once again, but he's here. He's mentioned uh, as, a, as a side, as, as a brother, um, but, but the Bible isn't through with him yet. He's going to pop up later in 1 Kings, and he's going to have to be dealt with. But still, he's this, this mysterious, complex character. He's gotten a lot of screen time in Samuel, but now he takes a back seat for this roll call while we get to hear some things that others have done. So this is the roll call of David's mighty men, this great warrior temple that surrounded the throne of the king. And just as we saw in David's hymn that the king is a warrior king and that we take after him, we follow him, so... We have all these constant reminders in the scriptures that we are engaged in conflict. When it comes to Satan and sin and the world of unbelief, the church is not 
a conciliator. The church is not an appeaser. The church is not an entertainer. Remember this always. The church is a war machine. The church is an army on the march. And our weapons of warfare are not swords and tanks and guns and bombs. Our weapons are worship. Our weapons are the Psalms. Our weapons are acts of service and sacrifice. Our weapons are acts of mercy and word and deed. But there's this tendency for us to read this warrior language and on the one hand, which, which is a good start, to, to get it into our head that we're to be warlike, we are, but then to stop halfway and then to focus all that warlike energy on the wrong targets. Our brothers are not the enemy. Our families are not the enemy. Neither are our children. It's, it's very easy to build this tough guy mentality that's, that's so full of bluster on the one hand, but at the same time, too timid to face real enemies. So you go after soft targets. You go after easy targets. Be a real tough guy and go to war against the people you are called to nourish and protect. That, that's not that's not a mighty man. That's not a real warrior. Real mighty men and real warriors, male and female, of which there are plenty in the scriptures, real women who crush the head of the serpent, those, those real warriors know primarily where the battle lines are. These men, these mighty men of, of David's kingdom are not agitating and fighting other Israelites. They're not stirring up trouble in Ephraim or stirring up trouble in Benjamin. They're not stirring up trouble uh, within the borders of David's kingdom. They are fighting God's enemies. They are fighting the tyrants and the oppressors and the invaders. So too, Jesus leads us in the fight. He calls us to take up the sword. But the big question is, where do we point it? Where, Where do you point that sword? Well, first, you point it against the sword, the, the, the thorns and the sin in your own life, your own thoughts and behaviors and feelings that stand in opposition to Jesus. You do battle first with besetting sin. You knock down your own idols. You rip out everything that is robbing you of peace and rest and life in Jesus. That's what Gideon did, right? When God called him to be a warrior, the first thing he did was knock down all the idols on his father's land. That's the first thing you do. Destroy the things that are causing you grief and trapping you in guilt. Go to war first against sin, the sin in your own life, and fight that sin so tenaciously that your hand molds to the sword like Eli. Don't give up fighting until you can't open your hand. Confess it. Expose it to Jesus. Ask him to fight it by his power and the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask him to deliver you from these oppressors. Take off the habits of death. Take off the liturgies of death and put on the liturgy, the habits of life. And we often need help doing that. We often can't do that on our own. So there are times where you need help in that fight. So you need to talk to an elder. You need to talk to your pastor. You need to talk to a brother or sister, someone you can trust and say, look, I'm not getting anywhere. I need your help. But that's where you first point the sword. It's, it's really easy to go after soft targets. It's really easy to get all uh, warlike and then, and then face uh, uh, your brother with the sword. No, your first target is yourself. Then... Then point your sword at the kingdom of darkness as it encroaches on your family or on the church. Defend the people you love with that sword. Don't point it at them. Defend them with it. 
Fight against everything that opposes Jesus, everything that rivals the lordship of Jesus. Fight it. Everything that sets itself up as a false Messiah, fight. Expose the error and speak truth. Do these things. Do these things that you're called to do. And then when you're called up, when you're mustered to battle against a giant or a bigger enemy, you'll be practiced and you'll be skilled. You'll have some experience with the sword because you fought sin in your own life and you've defended those God has called you to defend. Then you'll be ready. I think we have grand ideas about how we fight the big cultural giants when we're losing the wars of fighting against temptation ourselves. We're not protecting our own homes or families. We're not protecting the church from error. We're doing all these uh, goofy things that we're not paying attention to, the, to the, the, the battles that are right on our doorstep. And we think, oh, we got these big things out here we need to. And we got grand ideas. Well, maybe one day, maybe one day. But first, pick up the sword, grip it until your hand is, is, is uh, frozen around the hilt of that sword and cut out the thorns and the weeds and the idols in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed make us mighty as this list of men that served King David. And Father, uh, where we see that they are um, but men, they all needed your Holy Spirit to uh, fill them to fight the enemy. Those that stood by themselves on the, on the battlefield, in one sense, were not entirely by themselves because they had your spirit. So Father, we pray for that same spirit to motivate us, to encourage us, to give us strength in our fight that you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.